Welcome to the Fitness Candor Podcast. Your host, Eric Feigl, will be bringing you the truth about exercise and the fitness industry. You'll hear from fitness professionals, exercise science professors and researchers, fitness industry entrepreneurs and leaders, as well as people who simply love to talk shop. Stick around after the show to learn how you can get your topic in an upcoming episode. Enjoy the show. everybody. Welcome back to Fitness Canter Podcast. I have a very special guest today. I'm super excited to, to share this guy's knowledge with you. Uh, Mr. Jim Flanagan has been in the fitness industry for well over 50 years. Um, started out in, in Nautilus. And if you've obviously been listening to this podcast, you've heard me mention that name quite a bit. Um, and then he's moved on into, uh, he started out in Nautilus in, in the early 70s, kind of when things were getting started. Um, worked a lot with Arthur Jones in, in that area and in MedEx and is now the current president for Resistance Solutions. And um, I really, I mean, I this is not a very um, gracious intro because he's been, he's done so much for the industry and and uh, especially in strength and conditioning. And if you know, if you're especially a young trainer coming up in the industry or a young coach, um, or even if you've been in it for a long time, there's there's definitely going to be some. Some worthwhile info in the the background of what we're doing today. So, um, guys like Jim really kind of set the stage for what we're doing. So I, I tip my hat to you and and Jim. I, I appreciate you taking some time to share some knowledge, sir. Well, I appreciate the invitation. Looking forward to the uh, the talk. Awesome. So, so outside of what I just said, you know, kind of uh, just basically the highlights of your career, I guess, like the bullet points. Can you tell us a little more about exactly how you got into not only the fitness industry, but maybe strength training and weightlifting uh, as a whole? Well, I, I'll be happy to. I uh, ended up being a physical education major. It took a while to get to that point, but uh, I won't go into all that past. Uh, but I decided to be a physical educator and I wanted to coach. And uh I, I accomplished the degree. And uh, at the time I got out of college, uh, it was in December, so I went to two summer schools and kind of accelerated because I had to pay my way. It took seven years to get through four years, and the only available job available at, at that time was elementary physical education. They just started that program in the Orange County School System in Orlando, Florida, and I had to have a job. I was broke and uh, took the only job available, so uh, I learned a lesson about uh, anytime you have a negative situation in front of you where it doesn't work out like you think it should or it uh, did, you take that negative turn to a positive. So I said, well, I can't get a coaching job. I'm, I got the afternoons free. I still work out at Milo's gym. I'll just go to that graduate school at night. And I did that. So one thing led to another. <clears throat> and um, I went back to the college. Uh, it's now called University of Central Florida. You may, you may have oh, been yeah. reading. Oh, yeah. And they uh, they, they uh, had a quite a, quite an unbelievable football season from an 0-12 two-year-ago schedule to 13-0 uh, this year which no college in Division One's ever done, or I don't think any other college has done that in a two-year period. So they, they got themselves on the map. Well, I was on the first varsity sport uh, in 1970, 71, uh, as on a basketball team. And they, we launched the program. There was basketball, baseball, and wrestling. There's three varsity sports that year. And I went back to school late, as I said. I started college in 64 in a private junior college. Played basketball and didn't make my grades to the level my father thought I should have, so he pulled the plug on me. So that was my uh, indoctrination into uh, nobody owes you anything. Yeah. You need it's, it's up to you now because you goofed up. So uh, lessons of life. Having said that, I was always intrigued by um, those who worked out and had superior physical development and uh, they looked good. And I picked up a strength and health magazine. At 14 years of age, just turned four. I, I wasn't even 14. I was 13, going on 14 that year. And uh, it was put out by York Barbell, Bob Hoffman, and read it cover to cover. And I believed everything I read, like most young boys at that age. So I started, I couldn't wait to go to the newsstand every month and pick up strength and health. I tried, tried lifting some weights on my own, had no structure, no development, nobody to teach me. And uh, I didn't get good results. So I kind of gave it up. There was no structure. And in those days, if you were an athlete, which I was, I played baseball, basketball, and uh, swam, 
you weren't allowed to touch weights because of all the superstitions and the myths that the coaches at that time thought about that would uh, make you a poor athlete, hurt your skill. Yeah, you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, I didn't do it. So later on in 1968, I was uh, you know working full time, 60 to 70 hours a week in a bank repossessing cars. And by the way, I dug a lot of ditches after my freshman year of college and uh Got into that light construction and then uh, worked in a finance company and then a bank. So I, I had to work and get the money to pay my way through school. I was intrigued in Orlando, Florida by a guy named Milo Steinborn, who was the professional wrestling promoter at the time, since 1953 here, and was a famous vaudeville strongman, world's strongest man back in the 20s. Milo had a gym called Milo's Gym, and it was $10 a month, no contract. And it was very intimidating. I was uh, just turned uh, uh, 21 that year and a year before. And so I walked in the gym at 6'5", a buck 90, and uh, pretty fearful, not too sure what to expect. And they took me under their wing and put me on a program with uh, barbell squats, deadlifts, shrugs, uh, presses, uh, bench press, incline press, shoulder presses, curls. Tens, dips, whatever, you, a mix of exercises, and it was a, a, a camaraderie ship, a bunch of guys, all levels of business, a lot of pro wrestlers uh, that came through there because he had a wrestling ring, and uh, a year later, I ended up being 240 and just eating good food, and uh, I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I know what I'm doing because I'm getting results. Go back and uh, go to school full-time in the spring of 70 and walk on and make the basketball team. I had to try out and uh, started, but I was the only guy that lifted weights. Nobody lifted weights back then. It was taboo. Right. And uh, played at 235 and uh, had a record or two I set early on. There's no comparison because there's no team prior to that, but that was part of starting the whole program. And I had a great, uh, great experience there. And then uh, – I continued as soon as basketball season was over in uh, like March of 71, I got right back into Milo's gym and there was an article in Iron Man magazine put out by Perry and Mabel Rader. Mm -hmm. In fact, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I remember was on the cover who I didn't know much about, but I'd seen some things about him. And I read this article called distance, resistance and speed by Arthur Jones. And it, I, I'm thinking, golly, I never, I never thought about this. And in that article, it talked about, the most worthless question is how much can you bench? Yeah. And how many times have we heard that in our life? A lot. And he, he went through a, a complete breakdown of distance, resistance, and speed of movement. And I'm thinking, God, we, this has never been in the magazines before. I've never heard about this guy or heard about what is this? And then I saw a picture of a contraption, which was one of his early prototype Nautilus machines. Lo and behold, Arthur Jones relocated uh, 1968 from Africa, 28 miles from where I lived. And I made an appointment with my training partner, who was an architect, George Tuttle. And I ended up teaching his daughter years later. And we went up on a Tuesday night. And when I met Arthur Jones, my world changed overnight at that moment. I didn't know it at the time. But uh, I was mesmerized, and it was not a it, it was not a one on one conversation. It was a monologue because he was speaking, and you listened right. the whole time, and you didn't question him. You listened, and the information was so uh, fast and so meaningful that it's just like almost hard to even comprehend it all. But it was so impressive. Then he took us over to Deland High School to the Kwanzaa Hut, and there was a set of his first machines being utilized by a couple of people at the time he had a little bit of a deal there with the athletic director, which really that kind of set the tone. That was the only showroom he had at the moment. And we watched a guy go through a workout, which was the most intense, frightening looking thing you'd ever seen <laughs> at the moment because nobody in the gyms where I, where I was uh, really worked out that hard like that with that intensity level. And, uh, it was so impressive. And this guy was, uh, I mean, sweating profusely, breathing like a panther. <laughs> he was exhausted on each exercise. And uh, it got your attention at that moment. It's something you never seen before. You don't forget that. Right. So we drove back and forth. And, and, and Arthur, at, at that time, actually that night, had written routines uh, for us on conventional equipment to take back to Milo's gym. And we, we took the routine, started training, 
three times a week. Uh, going down below parallel or full squat, which we never did before. We didn't know. Now, Milo Steinborn, if he caught you not going down below parallel, he'd kick you out of the gym because he was old school. He wanted it. You go all the way down and come back up. Well, we started implementing the protocol. We did one set to momentary muscular failure. And uh, it, we, it took probably six to eight weeks before we could complete the full workout. That's how hard it was compared to what we were doing before in, in there for two hours at a time. All right. Now, keep in mind, the workouts we did up to a certain point, the body had not ever done that before. So the body did respond to the stimulus to a point. But we really had no records of what we were doing. We were just, It was kind of a, a camaraderie ship. You know, everybody came there. We, everybody was talking and uh, it, it hadn't changed. The same thing goes on today. They went back almost 50 years ago, 50 years this year. And so uh, I look back and kind of laugh at it, but that was where I started. I cut my teeth at Milo's house and got to be very close to him years later. But then I went up and saw Arthur one day and he allowed us to drive to the Kwanzaa hut two days a week and work out on that equipment. The results were superior. They were demanding. It was exhausting. And, you know, and we did that for nine months, back and forth, back and forth. And I was, I ended, I was actually teaching school my first job. So we would leave uh, about three thirty, get up there by four, four fifteen, four thirty, work out, get home by seven, six thirty-seven, on Mondays and Fridays. Then uh, nine months later, George Tuttle, my workout partner, uh, said, "Look, I'll buy five machines if you put those in your garage." Well, I thought I'd die and gone to heaven. Really? <laughs> yeah. Five Nautilus machines. I, I can list them. It was leg extension. It was a Nautilus pullover, a, uh, a, a rope machine without using grips. It was uh, with the pad on the elbow, a uh, makeshift torso arm, which I attached to a beam, but it had a cam on it for a back pull down, front pull down. You sit in the floor. And I, had a, I was in a garage apartment. I can still remember that. And a plate-loading bicep and tricep machine, which was a full-range bicep and tricep, single-joint rotary movement exercise, as was the pullover and the road machine and the leg extension. So we implemented that with a barbell squat and a deadlift and, and, and a parallel dip and chins. And uh, I started training uh, athletes from Boone High School for free. Going to graduate school at night, a couple nights a week, training on the off nights and on Saturdays. And I taught a year and a half and I realized, you know what? I'm going to go into the gym business. I want to train people because I, I didn't get a coaching job, but I can coach people. And that's how I got started. And uh, one thing led to another. And then uh, I taught a year and a half. I had a summer job. I ran a recreation program for a very wealthy part of this central Florida area called Windermere out near the Chain of Lakes. And uh, it was a great guaranteed salary for the summer program. And uh, then I go to graduate school at night. So I was covered. And so in, in May of 1973, I resigned from the school system and uh, found a building, raised the money, and bought the rest of the line of Nautilus that was out at the time. So I opened with 11 machines. Now, so I, so I came in from a different side angle with Arthur Jones and my relationship. I was a customer first before anything else ever happened. I didn't uh, go ask for a job. That didn't, that didn't happen. I was a customer first. But every time I had a free moment, I would drive to Lake Helen and hang around. And I was like a sponge. And I heard lecture after lecture. All types of people coming through. Don Shula, the Bengals, Pete Brown. Kim Wood was there. I met Kim Wood early on. And he basically single-handedly launched Nautilus with Arthur Jones and, uh, and Pete Brown in, in the NFL. I mean, that was a major, major uh, accomplishment at that time because very few people were doing any kind of co uh, consistent strength training or weight training for the football players. Right. Uh, so I, we were all kind of there at the same time, and uh, Kim went on to uh, – get hired with uh, by Paul Brown and be the strength coach of the Bengals. And Pete Brown had worked uh, an arrangement to be the distributor for Nautilus Midwest out of Cincinnati with, uh, with, uh, with the Brown family. And he, he did that and uh, ran that. So he had a dual role early, early on and did, which just was unbelievable what he accomplished. So we're all there. And I was a customer running the gym in Orlando 
And every time I got a little profit, I bought another machine. So I ended up having 41 machines in one club. Then I got another buddy of mine that we go back to right now, go back to 53 years together, almost 54 this year in fall. Got him started in the gym business. I was his partner for a year and a half and then sold him my interest and got him started. So I was I basically was responsible for getting about 70, 71 machines sold early on. Wow. 41 for me and my partner out there with that one. And um, that's how I got into it. So uh, one thing led to another. And uh, Arthur Jones uh, uh, would call me sometime and see if I could help him or could he, can you go to Dallas or Atlanta? Can you drive a truck to Atlanta and set these machines up? We're short of help. I never turned him down. I wanted that opportunity right. because I was I, I got hooked on it. I believed in it. Uh, I ate, slept, breathed, and dreamed it. And uh, I was helping people. And it's a, it was it was a tool, a series of tools that could really help people. And I, I got it. You know, I didn't understand all of it. There's so much to understand, so much knowledge out there. So the passion was there, and all the all the ingredients that you need to that are required to produce to to help people get results and and, and build your business. Uh, I was involved in it, and uh, over a two year period. Uh, I was with Arthur there, and, and uh, he calls me up one day, and uh, he was very serious. He said, uh, hey, there's an opportunity here. Uh, you know you know, Coach Don Shula? He's been a spokesperson for three years. His contract's coming up, and he has an option to be a distributor. Would you be interested in working with that possibility? I, I've got your name in the hat if you're interested. And I said, absolutely. What an opportunity. Gosh, I love Coach Shula. You know, what a what a man, you know. I got to fly with him on, on numerous occasions with the private plane and his family. And uh, he is top shelf a top shelf man, you know, and uh, a legend in his own world, as you know. Right. And so uh, I thought, God, I, here I am. I, I'm getting my graduate degree. I've got this opportunity. I'm, I'm in my gym business. Things couldn't be better. Well, as it was, Coach Shula, uh, for some reason, didn't take the opportunity, uh, what went elsewhere with his potential investments and, uh, of course, uh, continued coaching, and we stayed friends. So Arthur Jones let me, on a case-by-case -case basis, sell equipment for a commission rate, but I had to register the lead to home office and make sure nobody's working the lead in an open territory, which I thought was great. And it's, it's, it's amazing how things sometimes work out. They may be working for your favor or maybe not in your favor, but this happened to be kind of unique. About a year and a half before, I had a man come in my uh, gym, and uh, he was a senior VP with Burdines, which is a big retail name. You've probably heard it up there. It's, it's in the South. And uh, he walked in, introduced himself, and had checked my gym out and said, I, I need to train. I need to get stronger. I'm 57 years old, and I I just failed on Mount McKinley. I'm a mountain climber. That's my hobby. So I trained this man for nine months personally. This is before personal training started charging money. I charged memberships, and I didn't know any better. I should have charged extra, but I didn't. <laughs> right. I, I, I was coaching people. I, I was a phys ed guy first. That was my calling, so I gave it away. Not knowing, not knowing any better. Well, this man went back nine months later and beat Mount McKinley. Wow. So uh, that was impressive. So uh, when Arthur Jones offered me the opportunity, it wasn't two days later, I get a phone call from Charlie Fletcher, who had just relocated quickly to Sarasota to take over a store. And he said, can you come over here and meet me and my wife, Gloria? We want to take you to dinner and pick your brain. And we want to open a gym up so I have a place to train. And this man gave me a deposit for half of $75,000 with no quote on trust. I hadn't even made the quote yet. We talked, we stayed up late at night, had dinner, went out to dinner and had a great visit. And he says, I want that order place right away. How could I want I already got a building secured. I went and looked at it. He said, I want those machines as soon as I can get them. So I hand delivered that check. And that's, this is in the middle seventies now. So that was a big order. No kidding. Right. So, um, that Arthur didn't say anything. He didn't say, "Hey, good job." You never heard that at all. You just, you know. But I knew I was. I had a little leverage there, and so then we get that order taken care of. It's in production, and it gets delivered. And I even helped him get a guy hired. Uh, there was a former coach down there that came to my gym, drove from Tampa once a week to work out on my equipment in my gym. I got him a job 
And he quit coaching and then ran that gym for a while, a couple, three or four years. So it all worked out. And then a football coach here locally, his brother-in-law was a coach up in Green Cove Springs near Palatka, Florida, which is about a little over an hour and 20 minutes from here. He needed somebody to go by and do a presentation to the Booster Club the following Tuesday. So I went up and did that, put some literature in the car, went up and did a talk, got in front of the uh, Booster Club, a PO for $22,000. So now I'm on a roll. I'm selling equipment on a part-time basis. So this goes on for a while. And uh, finally, I called up Arthur one day and uh, asked him if I could come see him. He wanted to know what about. And I said, well, I'd like to talk with you about maybe representing the company a little more if I could. And he said, meet me on Tuesday morning about 11 a.m. Now, this is kind of unique. It was kind of, I didn't figure this out until years later, but there was a series of litmus tests sometimes that he to test your will, your grit, your integrity, your work ethic, your honesty. Yep. And I've been around for a long time, since 71. Every time I could be, get a chance, I'd be around there, you know. And so I go up there and meet him, and uh, he didn't show up till 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting in the lobby for two hours. Well, most people would probably leave. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I, I didn't. And he shows up. He's very apologetic. He looked like he'd been up all night long. And he told me he was under the gun. They had to finish a film with Dick Butkus. So I uh, I said, I certainly understand that. He said, look, I'll get with you when I can. Uh, come on back in the uh, building and we'll watch. We got the studio. We'll be here. When I get done, we'll, we'll meet. So we stay there till 11 p.m. Oh, my God. That's 12 hours after my scheduled appointment. And the first question was, is, are you hungry? <laughs> Am I hungry? Uh, you like quail? I said, well, I'll eat anything. Uh, let's go down to the trader. Some of my cronies from the old reptile days are here visiting. And she, uh, his wife's fixing quail. Let's go eat quail. And we sat out there at about 1 o'clock in the morning with mosquitoes. It was hot, humid. Then we go up to his apartment. At the time, he was remodeling his home in Lake Kellen. He was living in a makeshift apartment over the factory. And we go up the, up the stairs, and I'll never forget this. He, uh, he turns on me and goes, uh, what are you here for? I said, well, I'm here to see if I can't sell more equipment. And he goes, if I didn't like you, I wouldn't have time talking with you. I mean, it kind of shocked me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I said, yes, sir, I understand that. And he told me he's looking for loyal people. And I said, well, you're looking for honest people. I'm looking for loyalty. I said, well, I think they go hand in hand in my world. And uh, he said, here's what I'll pay you starting Monday with no, no job description. You better find something to do. And that's how I got, that's how I got hired and uh, inside the company and uh, never looked back. Had my gym for close to 15, not quite 15 years. And then I had employees run that and then uh, went to work for him. And uh, that's how I got in there. And then I was with him from the time we had that company until he sold in 86. And then in 87, I went with him uh, and started Medex, the second company. So all in all, Eric, I had a, from the time I met him to the time he died, and I, I went to see him about a week, two weeks before he passed away. I, when he passed, I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I got the call. But uh, uh, I was with him, well, from the time I met him till the day he passed, 36 years plus. Wow. So wow. that's how I got there. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's a story in itself. I mean, that's, um, it's, I mean, there's, there's so much, just the history of it, and to know that uh, what, what was happening back then set everybody up to what we're doing now. You know, like when there was no personal training, you guys were the first. And when there was no such thing as um, a strength coach, you know, you were friends with, um, with Kim and, and he was the first. There's all of these firsts that I think uh, people who are listening to this now hopefully appreciate because we, we wouldn't have this industry if it wasn't for everything that happened, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, well, it's a good point. I know, uh, you know, Kim was one of the first, and he probably one of the first or second in the whole NFL. Probably the first. They had a guy named Alvin Roy with the San San Diego Chargers, who was he kind of last on to the LSU Tigers back in uh, the '58 era when Paul Dietzel, '57-58 through '59, uh, was undefeated with the Chinese Bandits and had a great running back, All SEC, All American, Billy Cannon who was uh, a weight lifter under the tutelage of Alvin Roy, according to Alvin Roy. And uh, Arthur knew him years ago because he had reptile farms in Slidell, but that kind of was the first time you really heard somebody uh, on a real structured Division One program. Right. 
there was a lot of input there. There's a lot of people that got involved. A lot of people contributed. We, uh, there's a handful of people still around, uh, yeah. Wood, obviously Ellington Darden, who, you know, uh, uh, uh of course, Gary Jones, Arthur's son is uh, still actively involved in the company, uh, Ham Ham and then designer, but uh, it's, it's it's changed a lot. There's over, I mean, there's over 50 companies plus out there trying to make machine type equipment, which right. basically, uh, you know, uh, kind of because of Arthur Jones and what he accomplished at the time. The timing was right, right at that exactly. time. So, so I, I want to go back a little bit and earlier to the part of the conversation when you talked about how uh, when you first started training. Uh, with Arthur Jones in that style, you, you mentioned momentary muscular failure. And I think a lot of people who are training now, uh, maybe may, might not know exactly what that meant or what it means. So could you, could you kind of tell us a little sure. bit more about that and what that, what that exactly looked, cause we don't be able to feel what it was like, right? It was a totally different experience, but um, I was, what's it look like? Well, our Arthur Jones, I was very fortunate with him as was Kim Wood early on uh, during that 70 period. And this man spoke day after day, holding seminars around the country, going here. What people would request him to give a lecture, he'd do it. Mm -hmm. And we we got to hear these valuable talks. And the man was just phenomenal. If you look at his literature, I'll give you a website. A guy named John Turner, who you probably you know John. I know John. John. I know John. Oh, yeah. John has gone to great. Uh, fortitude and a lot of work to put everything on the internet in a very uh, structured, uh, easy to look at way. And that's, that's arthurjonesexercise.com, right. full range exercise. Uh, every article written, there's over a million words that Arthur Jones wrote and published in the field of exercise and rehabilitation. And I think that if you, if you can read that and learn all that information or part of it, you'll be so far ahead. Uh, and, uh, we had, we had access to the articles because they came out during our era. And uh, if you go to the gym, and Arthur used to use this, he goes, today's state of the art in the fitness business, in the gym business, people drive to the gym, they buy the memberships, they spend two and three hours working out three and four or five days a week, maybe longer. And they take these supplements, and they buy all the latest fashionable shoes and clothing wear and so forth. And in fact, you look at all that time and money spent and look at the results that are actually producing, plus the injuries they're incurring, they would be better off doing nothing. Hmm. I heard that a hundred times in lectures. And I'm thinking, you know what? Now I've seen that. And I'm thinking, you know what? Today it hasn't changed. You watch these people walk in, they got their lifting belts on, they got their bag and they get their outfit on, walk in, sign in. They spend two, two and a half hours in the gym, looking in the mirror, pumping up, talking to people. And they're not keeping records of what they're doing. They just feel good. It's a pump. And, and, and there's some great people with great genetics. Right. But they think they're getting results. And they're wasting their life away. And it's amazing. And it, it hasn't changed. Probably more so than ever before because more people are doing it because of the media. So uh, having said that, when I saw the first workout with a guy at DeLand High School, it, it kind of shocked me. kind of scared you a little bit. Holy mackerel. I've never seen anybody work that, that hard in my life. Well, you get on that equipment and you get through it, it's amazing. And, and, and the problem is in our scientific community, even up to the last 20 years, it was, it was anaerobic this and aerobic that. And everything emphasis was always on the aerobic training. Mm -hmm. And I can, I'm going to give you an opinion. This is my opinion. Please don't you know, think this is scientific research, but it doesn't take much to figure out. Look at, look at the results. We were very fortunate because we, we went to all these different marketplaces and we were very big in the American College of Sports Medicine from a vendor side, which we had the biggest exhibits and we supported them. And that was where the academic research is done through the university system. And uh, there was those who were for you and those against you. you, know, you they either for again, they either liked you or they hated you. And a lot of them didn't like machines. A lot of them didn't like barbells. They were aerobic activity people. And I always remember going to, this is kind of, you know, just an observation from just year to year from the middle 70s through the 90s. All these scientific type peoples with their credentials and degrees would come to the original grand opening uh, cocktail party reception. And they had their coat and ties on and their lapel pins and uh, 
they would be conversing about how many miles did you get in your run today? That was a big question. Okay. Right. And it's one professor and you could cut the air with a knife, the arrogance and attitude. I mean, I mean, golly, because they're academic, they're above you, you know? And, uh, and I'm not bad mouthing anybody here, but I mean, I, what I saw, I can, you can see it. Well, it was kind of like one upmanship. Well, I, I ran, I ran in, I got a hundred miles in this week. Well, I beat you. I got 120. I'm thinking, well, really? Well, this goes on year after year. And each year you see these guys and they, they're thinner looking. They're, they're limping after a few years. Uh, they're wearing knee braces. Uh, then they got, uh, there's kind of stooped over a little bit. But they're still running every day. They get to get those miles in. That was the big. It wasn't anaerobic. It was aerobic. Well, they separate the two. And in the physiology books, I've still got all the books. I I had thirty five hours of physiology courses in undergraduate graduate classes, plus a thesis, five hour blocks, and I still got the books. And they go, God. And the, the chapter on anaerobic was like two pages. <laughs> this is you know forty seven years ago. Right. Uh, Austria and Rodol. Austrian or Rodol. And Guyton was a big physiology book, the big thick one. So it's just everything separated. Well, in fact, Arthur Jones tied them together because your body's a machine. Right. It's a unit. Yep. All right. And those systems are all active at the same time. Yep. Well, that's something, you know. So then you start going through this stuff. All of a sudden, the way he wrote things, it was so simple to understand that and he, he always gave the example well, the human body is like a car. Well, it makes sense. You got transportation over here. You got exercise over here. The human body has bones. That's the frame. The car's got a frame. The human body has a, uh, a spark plug system. That's the brain. The car's got an ignition system. That's the spark plug system. The, the, the human being has a uh, lung and heart system. That's a carburetor. Car's got a carburetor. Wait a minute. Human body's got 434 large skeletal muscles. That's the engine. The car's got an engine. Wait a minute, that's, that's pretty good analogy. That's pretty impressive. And and, and he started looking at that and go, wow. And uh, he broke it down so simple that just common sense, logic, yeah. which some people could, will never get. Uh, you know, there's a. He always said people become too specialized. They're too specialized. You need to step out of the box a little bit. But it made sense. Well, if you look at exercise, aerobic activity does stimulate the heart and lungs. Exactly. But it burns off muscle, steady state training. Right. So if you take an exercise that's anaerobic and make it hard, it's got to be brief. But you can go from exercise to exercise. The heart and lungs don't know the difference. Exactly. And you're, 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 we used to design, Ellington Dart did this on his uh, on his presentations, which we all used. Uh, the, the pyramid of exercise basically is uh, uh, flexibility, muscular strength, and cardiovascular change. All three are tied into the one workout without beating your joints up. That seems like that's pretty simple logic. And that, uh, that kind of set the standard, and that's what basically uh, helped launch that whole deal. And people, I mean, people got great results quickly without beating the joints up, but then it got attacked by the experts, you know, and Arthur Jones came out with the, the step, the process of, uh, you know, the, the experts, when they see something new that they didn't invent or produce, the first thing they do is ignore it. Then they, uh, then they ridicule it. That didn't go away, make it go away. Then they attack it. Then they copy it and they steal it. Yeah, exactly. Well, we see that over and over and over. So it, it, the guy was just, uh, what a tremendous mind. And uh, he put some standards out there. And, of course, in those days, uh, I, I, people asked me. I bought a lot of equipment. And people go, well, you must have got a discount because you work for him. I never got a discount on anything. He never offered I didn't ask him, and he didn't offer it. We, we kept it separate because that way you can't come back on you. Yeah, you know, right. and, uh, I, I, The way I looked at that was this, Eric. I'm taking money and investing in a tool that's going to make me money. That's what I did, uh, the, 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 the return on investment. And so uh, I opened my gym in November, November 1st of 1973, which is the worst time in the world to open any type of fitness program. I didn't know that. I didn't know any better, but I took the risk. 
And I didn't, uh, I'm thinking, oh, man, everybody's partying and it's Thanksgiving and Christmas and then New Year's Day. Then they all want to start coming in. So I had to adjust. And I, I sold short-term three-month memberships because at that time, it was uh, the articles uh, in the newspaper, it was basically geared towards athletes. And I was uh, pretty well known in the community as a phys ed guy. And I knew all the coaches. So I got the coaches free memberships and I got the kids coming in, the parents. And I did a conversion ratio of uh, if you sign up for three months and, and you convert to a year or two years, you get this uh, taken off your balance in the, uh, the, the whole, whole amount and within the you know, first three months off your membership. And I did a lot of conversion to build a cash flow up. I was a one-armed paper hanger, but I had to survive because I only had enough money in the bank to last for five months. I was very undercapitalized, but I pulled it off. My back was against the wall. I call it trial by fire. <laughs> so <laughs> I, was, I was lucky. You know, the, the difference between like now and, and then, I mean, there's, you, we could kind of like take it apart piece by piece, I'm sure. But what are, what are some of the biggest differences that you see um, maybe like, you know, before you kind of started to exit uh, being, you know, more, more hands-on with everything in the fitness industry compared to, to what it's like now? What are some of the biggest differences, maybe pros, cons, um, things well, that you'd like to see change? Well, I don't know. I don't, it, it, you're only going to get a few people. It's, uh, you, it, 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 the social media, advertising, TV, sports, the whole deal. What's happened in uh, the fitness business is that they've taken, unfortunately, Coaches today still believe wrongly that throwing a barbell is going to make you more quicker and powerful and explosive. Yeah. All right. And they don't understand simple laws of physics. And I'm not a physics uh, student, but I have enough knowledge to know, put it this way, in this field, and for all my experience, I know what not to do. All right. I don't know everything. Don't claim to be. I'm no expert, but I know what not to do. All right. And I realized a long time ago at Milo's gym when I did a power clean one time that I'm not built for this. I got 38 sleeve length and long legs. I'm not built for a power clean or a bench press or a squat. I was a pretty good deadlifter for, uh, you know, a long, tall guy. Yeah. But uh, I, I didn't know, I, but I didn't know anything about leverage. But I, until I started reading about distance, resistance, and speed, then I was around Arthur Jones. I realized, holy mackerel. And so, the problem is this, the barbell, as you know, came here in about the early 1900s, was in Europe before that. The barbell was a great tool. It was a very uh, leap forward in the field of exercise. And the results people got were so changeable so quickly compared to what people had been doing prior to that. People were afraid of people. They, it scared them to see the size of these big, tough European people lifting weights. And they had uh, competitions. So the barbell is attached to, to three sports, all right, when in fact it's a very meaningful tool for everybody right. because yeah. everybody's muscle functions are the same. Right. You know, muscle functions don't change, and a range of motion may, and distance, and so, but, but the muscle functions are there. Well, the barbell, refined exercise, as you know, made it balanced, gave you more variety, and was a little bit safer than what they used prior to the barbell. Well, here's the problem. It was associated with the sport of Olympic weightlifting mm -hmm. and powerlifting in the early 60s became the second sport with the three lifts, bench, squat, and deadlift, and then bodybuilding, physique competition. Those three areas are attached. So the average population sees a barbell or walks into a gym way back when, and they, they associate that barbell with those three areas. And it scares them when, in fact, that's what they should be doing to get themselves stronger because you have to have overload. Overload, as you know, is a requirement exactly. to stimulate change. Well, now the coaches get into it, and they believe mistakenly that, that slinging that barbell is going to make them quicker, more powerful, explosive, all that sounds good. And by the way, Alvin Roy, who was, a, was, was the guy at the time in the 50s and early 60s, went around speaking all the time about being explosive and driving it hard. you got you got to be explosive on that weight. I was in Vero Beach with the New Orleans Saints, and they had Nautilus machines they kept outside year-round in New Orleans, and they used a big visqueen drape over them and had them lubricated with oil, motor oil, and they were functional. And I went down to a camp, preseason camp, to check them out, 
and he was working guys out very slowly on the equipment. That's a true story. I saw that. So he didn't do explosive lifting, but he had you do it. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that tells you a lot. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what's happened is uh, that connotation that people are afraid of it. And, uh, and of course, you walk into the gym, you got now you got the free, they call it the freeway side. You know, a barbell is a barbell. Uh, I don't like free weight, but uh, they're all the muscle heads are over there. The guys with big traps out of their ears and their shaved heads and they're strutting around, looking in the mirror, scared <laughs> people off. But the average person, they're, they're afraid of that. Right, yeah. yeah. It, it, there's, a, there's a psyche there. Uh, there's there's a, a misunderstanding and there's misinformation. But uh, if it wasn't for the barbell, Nautilus would have never been invented. Of course, it goes back to the 1860s, uh, Gustav Zander, who we didn't know about until the middle 70s. Uh, actually, one of our truck drivers uh, was looking through a book in Ellington Darden's library in the showroom in his office on the end of the showroom at Nautilus in the middle 70s. And just happened to find this guy's name, and he had designed equipment with cams on it in the 1860s in Sweden. You may know that. And so uh, – uh, Arthur actually referenced that. He didn't know who the guy was. So there was an attempt made way back then, but it failed because the quantum leap to what they used back then compared to that was not going to be acceptable. I mean, Arthur and his lectures would talk about the Wright brothers flying in Kitty Hawk and that people, the experts and the reporters would say, there's no way you can fly. And they still wrote about it the day after they took off and, and, and flew a certain distance and landed. They still said it's impossible to have man fly. So that, that, you just changes. People don't like change. Right. And so Arthur came back, uh, back from Africa in the late 60s, 68, relocated to a real rural area to protect his children and uh, borrowed money from his sister and uh, was had worked on that first prototype since 1948 as a hobby because he was in searching for a better way for himself. You know, the guy was a tough guy. He, uh, he trained on again, off again, like a light switch. He was either all the way or nothing. He kept very accurate records. And, of course, he applied his knowledge with dealing with all the animals in the old days, studying uh, and doing measurements. And this guy, could, he could measure your arm and get an exact measurement. Have you heard that story? No, I haven't heard that one, no. Well, uh, the, the tape measure stretches, number one, and it has mass. So it's going to give you an, an inflated measurement. So he would take a newspaper. At the bottom of the paper was no print and cut it the length of a yardstick or, 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 or you know, a tape measure. And he, he would make the uh, tape measure off and measure it on paper, put that, transfer that to the paper. Now, it's paper thick. It's so thick now and doesn't stretch. Then you flex your arm, he'll get you a true measurement. He did. I saw that over and over. So, uh, you know, everything's, they, they, it's all about inflation and uh numbers and so forth but right. uh the guy he took what he learned from the animal business and studying animals because they're part of the predatory animal kingdom which we're part of and he applied it to the, the physiology the study of us the science of it uh, of the human body and uh kept designing and uh he built a lot of prototypes before he introduced the machine i mean he spent a lot of money borrowed a lot of money and uh he was lucky because I tell you what, it took it took seven years for Nautilus to really make it. Seven years, and that guy drove it home. I mean, he was. I saw at times. I don't know how he made the payroll, but he he, he pulled it. So he, he was self driven. So you know, to, anyway. to to cycle back about the, a little bit of the history. You know, there's there's records of um, of dumbbells back from like the the 1600s. So then you cycle forward. You know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And then you get yep. this amazing piece of equipment called the barbell. And then you get this guy who's like this obscure person who people think is crazy named Arthur Jones. And he, and he calls, and he calls the, uh, a seated chest press, uh, you know, a thinking man's barbell. And, yeah. and I think that's, that goes a lot to show just like when, when I'm telling people, when, when I, I'm obviously a full-time personal trainer. So when someone comes into the gym, uh, and they see all these machines going around and, they see uh, we have it set up in a specific way, you know, um, uh, large muscle groups to small muscle groups. They start with the legs all the way through. And then they see the dumbbell section. They see kettlebells. We have some kettlebells and things like that. And when I say we're going to start with machines and then we'll introduce them to other things, they're like, well, you know, machines are still kind of old school. I want to go over there and mess with like the kettlebells. And I'm like, well, let me tell you something like <laughs> machines are actually the newest pieces of equipment 
that we have. And you kind of have to give people – I think it's a, a responsibility of the current trainer to actually give a little bit of the history of what people are working with. It's not just, hey, let's use what's flashy and what you want to use because kettlebells are all over TV right now. Kettlebells are one of the oldest pieces of equipment ever. That doesn't mean they're the best. I'm not saying like every piece of uh, modern uh, machinery are, is the best. But what I'm saying is the history of, of what we do – and of what people have done, it needs to be brought out um, and talked about a little bit more so people can understand and appreciate what we actually use on a daily basis to stay strong, to stay mobile, to stay healthy, you know? Yeah, I agree. It's, it's called education. And right, exactly. uh, we, we won a, a lot of wars out there, but we lost a big battle. I mean, to be honest with you, the whole fitness scene has gone because what I was trying to tell you earlier, I didn't finish you got this cross-pollination from the athletic side of what these people believe to make them more powerful, explosive, and quicker, and all that stuff. They transferred that into the fitness, this cross-pollination into the fitness business to the average population. I mean, uh, you've seen what's going on out there with this, the boot camps and the flipping tires and jumping off boxes and things. I mean, really, I wouldn't put a teenager on that business, but they do it and they blow out knees and uh, have major back surgeries and they blame it on technique. Well, you know what? There's two things. When an external force exceeds the structural integrity of that area it's imposed on, and, the, and it depends on the strength of that muscle, tendon, and ligament, at that moment, you're going to have an injury. If you've got a weak muscle area, or a weak tendon, and ligament area, and you've got imposed excessive forces, you're going to have a problem. So that there's a difference in demonstrating how strong you are, and that's the problem. They cross-pollinate strength performance, feats of strength, bodybuilding, and powerlifting together, see? Right. And, yeah. think, and, and when, in fact, building strength is different than demonstrating strength, as you know. You're in the field. Yes. yes and yes, that's yes. the problem, and you've got to educate people. They're like, they're like sheep being led to water or slaughter. I mean, they don't know. They don't and they end up hurt, and then they quit. And, in fact, I mean, proper exercise – they're showing more and more data that proper exercise, first of all, as you know, must have overload. It's a requirement. If there's no overload, there's no stimulation. And the best definition I ever heard in my, all my years of dealing with all these physiology people and the academic type, it was Arthur Jones' definition. Exercise is movement against a source of resistance. That's simple. How simple can it be? Not much. That's, that's pretty simple. And uh, that's what you've got to educate. I, I ha here's an example. You, you ever see the the original Nautilus compound curl? Yes. Okay, I've got one here at my my home, and I had it at my gym in 1973. That and the compound tricep. Those two arm machines. Uh, and so, I had a guy come in one night. He, he goes, "You don't have any free weights. There's no barbells here. I, I, you can't get big on machines. You got to have you got to have free weights." This is 1975. I said, well, I beg to differ with you. Let me take you through a little workout give you a taste of it. Well, it shocked him. He, he signed up. So he becomes, but he's a meathead. He was a meathead. So he, he's, he's using the compound curl. I, I can't get my arms right. I'm not getting any size of my arms. The very next day, a woman who was a member came in and she's complaining. I'm using that, compound, that bicep machine right there. My arms are getting too big. That's how irrational this business is. Yeah. Think about it. This guy can't get his arms. My arms aren't getting big on machines or bicep machines. But but I'm getting my arms are getting too big. Are you kidding me? That, that's what you. It's, it, the whole thing's irrational. People are irrational, and they all have an opinion about it. So yeah, they. Uh, you know, it's and I I know this is like a whole separate podcast. But then you started talking about cross pollination, and there's a real disconnect between uh, sports performance, what people do in the gym to become better at their sport, and actually. <laughs> And actually, what sport is? You know, strength training is separate from the sport, um, and and I, and you know, a lot of people are going to disagree with that. That's fine; they can have their opinion too. Uh, but uh, the other day, I was looking on uh, somebody's Instagram page, and that you know, social media and and all of this is a is a big mess too because people want to do what's flashy, and so they go above and beyond what somebody else has done. What's flashy, and that doesn't mean it's safe. So I'm looking at this kid doing a, a bent over dumbbell row, but <laughs> Jim, listen, he, he was bent over in a pretty pretty shitty position. His his back was arched, he wasn't strict, and he was using this relatively light weight, but he was driving it really fast up to his chest. And as soon as it hit his chest, he would let it go, and with the same mm -hmm. arm, he would catch it before it hit the ground. 
And I'm looking yeah. at, and I'm looking at this thing like, wait, what yeah. does this have to do with anything besides getting clicks and likes and thumbs up and comments like, oh, this is so great. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, so I sent a message to the person and I said, so safety third, like what, what is this accomplishing? I still have yet to get a response. You, so, you won't, you no, won't. It just, it doesn't make any sense, but there's, but it's just the one up, you know, what, it kind of like that guy who's, who's, who's telling you, you know, <laughs> how come I, I don't want to use machines, wear your barbells. Well, you know, somebody's telling this guy, Hey, did you see what so-and-so did on Instagram or Facebook? You know what else can we do? We get we have to we have to one up that person. It's just one after the next. And uh, well, I remember back in the day we we had a course. They don't teach it now anymore. It's called Motor Learning and Human Performance. And it was a book. The textbook was written by Robert Singer, PhD. And I got to know him years later. But that was a that was the book. And Ellington Darden, who you know, got his PhD. Uh, he got a, a, a doctorate degree in uh, motor learning, human performance, and, and postdoctorate nutrition and science. So, uh, one of his articles he wrote uh, for one of the newspaper rags with uh, Sports World was called uh, basically uh, skill training, and uh, it, it was broken down in the book. Very simple. You got three types of transfer factors for the athlete. You have positive transfer, which you're 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 working you're doing movements that are exactly like the game you play practice just like the game that's positive transfer you're not wasting energy because that's a game-like situation that's what you should do then you got negative transfer which you're doing these different drills and things that have nothing to do or actually basically they actually can you know confuse a little bit they're similar to the skill but not the same thing right. and the example was going to daytona years ago at the boardwalk you could be the best free throw shooter and you can hit a hundred out of a hundred at a regulation 10 foot goal. But the Carney Con guy over here, he's at a teddy bear that he paid 50 cents for wholesale. It's going to cost you $5 before you regulate, hit five shots in a row because that goal is at nine feet tall and the distance from the goal to use at half the distance than it was in a regular free throw shooting. All right. In a game like situation at a, at a regular gym. So you're gonna have to, it's gonna talk, cost you close to five dollars before you regulate that specific skill, which is specificity, yep. to the task. Well, all you have to do is you, if whatever sport you're playing is number one, you assess the primary movers and the muscles involved in your athletic endeavor, and you strengthen those through the greatest range of motion possible safely, and then apply it to the skill. The indifferent transfer is when you're doing things that just don't have anything to do with the sport at all. You're just wasting energy. And these these players today, all these athletes in every sport, you name it, they're over-practicing and they're over-playing. Correct. They get the, the, and here's the problem. Today, the young kids, the parents, want their kids to be successful. It's like the gym membership 40, 50, 60 years ago, even today. It's intangible. They're selling hope. Hope. Well, your kid needs to play Nike team ball. He's got to play travel ball. He's got he, otherwise he won't be good. He, you got to sign up. What well, that, that travel ball is all summer long. It's off season. You're wearing these kids out. Yeah. But somebody's, yeah. making, somebody's making money off the deal. It's all hope. Yeah. See, and that's it's it's just crazy. And, you, and look at the injuries today compared. I mean, the injuries on the knees for these young kids. They shouldn't be having those kind of injuries. That, that's their growth time. Yeah. And, and, and it's. And, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. And then like the young, the young uh, baseball players, you know, 14, 15 years old who were getting Tommy John surgery. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, overuse. Overuse. And, you know, there, there's um, there, there's a, some people will say because, you know, you're lifting weights and, you know, people like to lift heavy weights and grunt and groan and everything. And some people think that because you're doing that, that injury just comes with the territory. And that's another misnomer, right? It's just like the athletic thing. It's like, no, that if you're lifting weights properly, there should be zero injury. And um, but that's just another thing you can kind of you know stack on top of the on top of the um, the mound of, of things that people think inaccurately, unfortunately, of of uh, fitness and exercise and in particular strength training. Uh, well, I, I mentioned uh, you know just for knowledge purposes for to, if, you, if people really want to learn. Yeah. Go to ArthurJonesExercise.com. John. All right. Now, also, uh, Kim Wood's son, John Wood, has, yep. if you want to go back into in depth history, I mean, really, it's the Iron Game and become a real student of that game and learn 
some of the things that happened and some of the misnomers, but all the history, he's got this thing called, which I belong to, by the way, ironleague.com. So do I. And it's, it's great to go browse and study and learn and see things of the past because it just kind of, and motiv- anything is motivating, but it's history. Yep. And they do a great job on that. But then also, uh, I'm involved with Luke Carlson, who you, I think you know Luke. I've had, uh, have you had Luke on your show yet? I haven't, but I do know him. And, I, and I'm going to have John and both, both John and Kim on my podcast uh, in the next couple of weeks. Good. Well, you'll get a lot of information, a lot of history there because they know it and they're doing a good job on that. But uh, Luke has the real hit.com and then I'm with him on that. And then the, the, the real hit experience, which we're, uh, we're doing a course. We teach to the personal training people that come down uh, once a quarter and uh, it's a two day deal, but he gives his blueprint. This man's very successful. I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, he was coaching when I first met him, but he's about 21 or 22. So then about 15, 16 years ago, and I was so impressed with the high school weight program of what they did. They were so structured and so organized. What a skill set. And they had male-female populations on all sports. They had an off-season program where the parent wrote a check. I think, I, if I can recall, it was about like $150 for the program off-season. And each athlete had a personal trainer take them through their workout by appointment. That's pretty impressive at the high school level. I mean, most high school weight rooms, as you probably know, the coaches let them go lift weights on their own, yeah. you know, do the basic lifts. So I was very impressed with it. So he had a, a clinic uh, three years in a row. I, I was I supported him a little bit as a vendor. And I spoke one year and we had dinner. And I told him, I said, you know, you have an opportunity. You, you could take this model and get into business and make a lot of money. You're way ahead of the game. I took the arrow in the heart way back when. Nobody knew who Nautilus was early on. And. I was lucky. I worked my tail off, but uh, you got something I didn't have, and you've got you're blessed with it. You've got a great organizational skill set, and so he called me and came down and spent a couple of days with me. About four months later, and this guy is killing it. He's got four training centers, and I won't tell you, but he he is he has got a system going. It's unbelievable, and he's making great money at it and providing a great service with the clientele really personable so uh, he's uh he's at discover strength right that's him yes i do yeah. know i do know him um i've had one of his uh, understudies on the uh, on the podcast a couple times who's that uh, T- tyler mccarthy yeah and okay he, and he just opened uh titanium performance and it's yeah they're and they are tyler's killing it, and he has one operation it's been open for just like a few months and he's uh not only is he killing it financially but just his no, the mm-hmm. philosophy and the principles that they that they that they teach and drive home, yeah, they're they're second to none. So I'll definitely reach out to him too. Well, um, Phil, in fact, I can give you Luke's number if you ha- you have his number. No, I don't. But uh, okay, I'll, I'll get that to you. I'll, oh, I'll, I'll, awesome. I'll you, yeah, you can call him directly or text him and just tell me you and I were together on a podcast and uh, mm-hmm. get him on sometime. He's he's quite a speaker and he's good. He does a lot of uh, coaching uh, CEOs around the country with uh, his business model. So he's got something that's really uh, pretty impressive. I'm real proud of him. Oh, that's awesome. Well, look, I, uh, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I'll be driving down – I'm not driving. Where am I kidding? I'm flying down from uh, Cincinnati okay. to um, Orlando for uh, spring training. I'm going to drive up to spring training with my dad. Uh, from Orlando, but I, okay. you know, and, and, you know, you, you said I got an open invitation and so I'm putting yeah. it on, I'm putting it on air. I'm coming to your house in a okay. couple what, months. What date, you know, <laughs> what date uh, Eric? What date? I'll, have uh, I'll have to shoot him to you. Oh. Um, okay. I just wanted to put it out there just for like okay. verbal confirmation because <laughs> no, you're, you have an open invitation. Love I'm, to have you. I want to hold, I want to hold myself accountable and I want to hold you to it. <laughs> Okay, I, I will. I will. I will welcome you anytime. You got an open invitation, and it's uh, great to get to know you. And and I really appreciate you uh, uh, extending the invitation to be on your program tonight. Oh, absolutely, and I, I'm I'm so glad you did. And uh, hopefully, I can have you back on sometime. And, and next time you're in Cincinnati, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out. I remember seeing you uh, last year at Kim Woods Football Strength uh, Clinic, and uh, you had kind of a gang of people around you saying hi. So I, I kind of uh, I ducked out and I kind of chickened out on saying hi, but uh, I won't don't, next time. <laughs> don't, don't chicken out, please. Uh, open invitation. I'll see you this spring. Then look forward to it. All right. Awesome. J- hey, Jim. I, I appreciate it. If uh, if people have any questions, comments, concerns, what's the best way to get a hold of you? 
uh, email me. I'll give you the email address. Initials JJ and uh, Flanagan is F L A N A G A N. JJ Flanagan at CenturyLink, and that's connected. C E N T U R Y L I N K, CenturyLink.net. Awesome. Good stuff. Right. Th- thanks, Jim. I-, I appreciate everything you do, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Well, stay, stay, uh, stay healthy and keep slugging in the trenches. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to suggest a topic or be a part of the show, get in touch with Eric on any social media platform at Eric Feigl or email fcp at ericfeigl.com. Make sure to check back every Tuesday and Thursday for more fitness candor. <laughs>